Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 147. So glad you could join me on a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, we have Campbell McGrath here. He'll be with us in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just did this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed, ring the bell for notifications, leave a review on iTunes, whatever you can do to help poetry spread around the internet. That's all that we ask of you, but we ask you to do it right now, so that'd be very helpful. So please do click something right now. Um, now, we like to begin the show with our, um, our Poets Respond Poet of the Day, and we have the pleasure of having Alexis Sears here, um, and here she is. Hello, Alexis. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a it's a early morning for me. Uh, next week we're switching to Monday night shows. I'm looking forward to that. But um, but it's great to be here on a Sunday morning, and and your poem is just so beautiful and, and tragic. Um, you know, as as the news is right now. And once again, we had one of those weeks in Poets Respond where almost every poem submitted was about mass shootings, which is a tough, you know, a tough day of reading and a tough a tough topic to write about. But like um, Nancy Miller said last week on the, on the show. You know, poets have a way of handling all this emotional grief that we all feel. Um, and you wrote, did, it, did it beautifully with this heartbreak guzzle. Um, do you want to just explain how the poem came to be? Yeah. So I knew right away that I wanted to write about this shooting, but I was sort of resistant because um, I was thinking, what could I have to say that other people haven't already said and haven't already said better? Um, but I always rely on form when I'm working with a difficult subject. And I really like the guzzle because the repetition of the word and the rhyme scheme, like to me, um, the form reflects the content. So choosing a poem with something that repeats when these mass shootings keep repeating, unfortunately, over and over and over. And like the, I chose the word now because it feels kind of urgent. Um, so yeah, just kind of, I knew I had to rely on form to sort of put all of these crazy ideas I had into just one cohesive thing. Yeah. Um, well, why don't you go ahead and read it right now, the heartbreak guzzle, and I'll uh, put it on screen for everybody. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, heartbreak guzzle. America, I don't know where to start now. Blood-soaked backpacks, the most callous part now. In Texas, fourth grade Mia plays dead, covers herself with her classmates' blood, why must our children be so quick, so smart now? Authorities say was able to obtain the gun legally. Circular graphics of statistics. This we know. The men in charge refuse to see this chart now. Our friendship was special, wrote Alithia, killed at age 10. Her best friend Nico had been struck by a car. She had drawn him sketching in heaven, making art now. Funeral homes are overwhelmed with little bodies, the newscaster says. Parents send in DNA swabs, young faces too deformed to tell apart now. My friend sighs, our country has collective PTSD. He's a poet, but nothing feels more meaningless than culture. Who cares about Tronstromer or Descartes now? Two years ago, George cried out for his mama. Two weeks ago, Black families shot down at a supermarket. One victim was 77. I picture her slumped over a shopping cart now. A moment of silence. They can hear the screams on other planets. 
What's next? Another church? My school? The Bart now? No one's going to change for you, Alexis. On the flight home, a black girl no older than four sings, I believe I can fly. I wonder if, no, when, will break her heart now. And that was Heartbreak Gosel um, by Alexis Sears. Um, and Alexis, we were talking uh, just over email. You have a new book out. So congratulations on that, that won the Donald Justice um, Poetry Prize. Do you usually um, write in form? I noticed, you know, Quincy Lear is the judge. Um, and, and he's a formal poet, I know. Is, is the book of a book of formal poetry or is it something that you yeah, dip into it's sometimes? it's mostly formal. Um, there's a little bit of free verse in there, but I'm so much more comfortable with form. I totally admire people who do free verse. I think it's amazing. But for me, I think... I just start rambling. It's really easy to get lost um, when there are no constraints. So I think the book is maybe 60, 65 percent form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just the form of poetry is just such a great container for, for grief. There's like walls to push against or something. And the, and the guzzle is probably the best form for that. Um, just a, a heartbreakingly beautiful poem. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Alexis. And hopefully we can have you on the show uh, to talk about your book soon. Thank you. It was great to meet you. And Campbell, it's great to see you. I I just admire your work so much. So this is really cool. Thanks so much. I love that poem. I love that you really took the all of the guzzles formal features, including the, the rhyme word leading into the repeat word. It was really nice. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, sure. A lot of times the uh, you know we do we partial guzzles, and so I'm um, keeping each element the uh, the the each uh, couplet being unique, you know, its own little world, and and then the your name at the end. Yeah, great stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Alexis. Thank you for having me. Okay, now we're going to share a Tuesday's poem. Um, Katie Bickham couldn't be here uh, today, but um, um. But I have her poem here, and another poet that we'll probably have on as a main guest sometime coming up. Um, Katie is, is the author of some of the best poems we've ever published, I think. that The Blades poem is just amazing. And this poem that she wrote for Tuesday, which I'm going to have to read myself here, is, um, is about the Mona Lisa, um, which was smeared with cake for like the hundredth time. And it brought up these articles about how many times people have tried to deface the Mona Lisa. And, um, and so Katie wrote this poem about the Mona Lisa um, and here it is. I'm just going to read it, and then uh, hopefully we'll have Katie on the show sometime soon. This is uh, Katie Bickham's Lisa. There was a time the smiling lady saw the world unguarded, nothing between her eyes and the eyes of her admirers. She'd felt naked then, in her frame, even in all those heavy clothes, but liked it. Her smile had been real, the kind that came without thinking like a breath the kind that almost dared them, touch me. But then one did. He stole her in a Parisian night, kept her locked away beneath his floorboards. He'd say later he meant to take her home, back to Florence, where she belonged, that it had all been a valiant rescue, night and damsel sort of thing, but she knew, smiling in the dark, damp under his feet, he'd wanted only to own, to feel her under him, to have her chaste and smiling, locked up tight, She was found, of course, brought back into the light, returned to her perch, but by then she was legend, the smiling lady who no man could resist. And that smile dared more, thought those who gazed upon it. The man tried to take a razor blade to her, desperate to see what was hiding between those wry, closed lips. The next threw a stone, like in the old stories, about what happened to women who gave their smiles too freely. 
but by then, like all too beautiful women, she'd been placed behind a wall of glass, thick like armor, like bars. The smile then fixed in place felt sour on her face, but necessary. You cannot hurt me, it seemed to say. But that is its own kind of dare. In the decades that followed, a man would throw acid at her, hungry for the power of having ruined something beautiful. She was sprayed with red paint, accosted by a thrown teacup that shattered the glass, laughing, and she smiling as a woman must, whom nothing can ever hurt or ever touch. They all had their reasons, perhaps even good ones. This week a man smeared the glass with cake frosting, sugared and glistening under the measured light. He said he was doing it to save the world, because her smile was the world, and anyone who could dirty it would be the world as well, anyone who could shake it, destroy it, could call it his own. She smiled as she does, longingly, oddly, to taste it, to feel something soft, something sweet on her curved lips. But it was cleaned away quickly, glass sprayed and sterilized, and the man with the clo cloths didn't even glance through the glass at her while he worked. When they all leave in the evenings, when the lights are turned low and she is alone, she considers closing her eyes, letting the tired muscles in her cheeks go slack. She wishes, even for a moment, to glance back over her shoulder at the horizon line, hazy in the distance. How far away the years of smiling truly. How long it has been since she's felt the air on her face, smelled the sweetness of a new child who has come to smile back at her truly. She catches her own reflection in the low-lit glass. The smile that dared, that once was real and offered something up, looks tired at the corners, she imagines, but goes on smiling all the same. Tonight, eyes fixed open, smiling in the way a woman must to get by in this world, she decides she will no longer dream of being free, of baby's breath or sweetness on her tongue. She dreams of equally impossible things, of blades, of acid, of stones. That is Katie Bickham's poem for Sunday. That is Lisa, um, giving life to Lisa herself as a human being. Um, Katie Bickham, of course, is um, the uh, Reader's Choice Award winner a few years ago and um, just published some wonderful poems in Rattle. Now we're going to take a quick break and get to our main guest, which is, of course, Camel McGrath. So I will uh, put up some splash screen here, and I will be right back. Back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, as I mentioned, Campbell McGrath is the guest today. Campbell McGrath is the author of 11 books of poetry, most recently Nouns and Verbs, New and Selected Poems, and uh, XX, Poems for the 20th Century, um, a finalist for the 2017 Pulitzer Prize. His work has appeared in scores of literary journals and anthologies, as well as the New Yorker, Atlantic Magazine, Harper's, and the New York Times. He's earned a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Witter Biner Fellowship from the Library of Congress, United States Artist Fellowship, and a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award. He lives with his wife in Miami Beach and teaches in the MFA program at Florida International University. And here he is, Campbell McGrath. Hey, Campbell, how you doing? Good, Tim. How are you doing? Thanks for having me here. Yeah, it's great to meet you. You're one of those poets that, um, for some reason, our paths have never crossed, but I've known your poems for so long, so it's really cool to finally meet you. Um, do you want to start out with a poem so people can get, a, get, a, get an, on board with the poetry mood? Let's do it, yeah. Um, I'm going to read the very first poem in Nouns and Verbs, uh, New and Selected. Because, um, I don't know, it seems like a good place to start. Start at the beginning. Saying no. No, sir, absolutely not. Sorry, but no. Not sorry, actually, just no. 
Keep it simple, plain vanilla. Nope, not happening. Big N, big O. No way, no how. Negative, nuh-uh, ixnay, nyet. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Not likely, not likely. Maybe, but I doubt it. Possibly, conceivably, in theory. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, sure, okay, why not? Oh, definitely, yes, wow, I mean, anything, anything at all. When can we begin? That was saying no, the opening poem, one of the new poems from the New and Selected, uh, Nouns and Verbs book. Um, and so can you start out, talk about this uh, new and selected book? It's interesting the way it's set up compared to, um, you know, usually when you have a new and selected, you'll have some new poems and then we'll go chronologically through like each book. And it seems like kind of an easy process of just like picking your fa- the poems you don't hate by now and then putting them in a new and selected and then going through the career. But these are organized to be its own object and you know, in a way the, the, they're arranged by sort of like stylistic mood or something like that. Um, and so it was, yeah. it's a really interesting experience reading through. It feels different than it does um, a lot of other new and selected books. So can you talk about just how that how the book came to be and, and why you did it like this? Well, I like what you said there. It feels like its own object. And that's kind of, to me, was the point that, you know, it's like the greatest hits album syndrome. I mean, you know, really, you know, if you like a band, then you listen to their albums and you may know the good songs, but you don't need them all collected in the greatest hits album because you already know them. So for me, I had always resisted doing a selected poems. I mean, it, it was after 10 books because I didn't feel like it was justifiable if it wasn't its own object in the universe. You know, I love books. I mean, I, I, a lot of poets think of the poem as the unit of thought, but I, I really like books. So I was like, unless it's a book that I'm like, I see why this book is in the world and why it's different. I didn't really want to do it. And so, you know, A, time had been moving on and it had been 10 books. So it was probably a good idea. My editor said, why don't we do it? And then I said, okay, but I got to devise a strategy. So there's new poems, but then looking back at the previous books, rather than do what you suggest, which is very logical, you know, pick a set from each book. I, I said, well, let me just think about my work. What are the, not necessarily themes to because the themes overlap, but but formally was one of my main things. You know, separating prose poems out. I love prose poems. I have a lot of them. I also write a lot of long kind of poems, lyric poems that really carry on and on. And I, I group those together. So by grouping things differently and kind of pulling threads from different books, I felt like I was able to make something that to me felt like a book that really was really different mm-hmm. from the first places you might have seen some of those poems. Yeah, well, it worked really well. And um, the other thing that stands out is is how much just variety it is in style and subject matter. And and I really get the sense reading through all the poems that of the joy you get in the process of writing. Like, I feel like there, you're you're always like challenging yourself to try something different, like seeing if you can pull something off. And then like, there's some like sense of like fun in the variety of it, which I hadn't thought of reading poems individually before, but, but seem together kind of just that, that brings that element out. Is that what it's like for you? I mean, it feels like you just have a blast writing. <laughs> that, that, I mean, first of all, that ought to be the way it, you know, there's really no other reason to go into this uh, crazy world called, you know, poetry land, um, unless it just simply feels really fun to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not about fame and fortune and, uh, you know, power and control over the masses. It's about, really, really enjoying that act of sitting down with language and trying to make something on the page. 
that's that's it. That's the whole the whole reward for being a poet is to get to write poems. You know, I, I'm constantly talking about that with my students. Like, but you know, right now in an MFA program, you're already getting to write poems. It doesn't get any better, even if you publish ten books. You're still just writing poems, mm-hmm. and you still got to make each new poem up out of thin air. You know, you I always feel like my ten books should be like a little army helping me to write the next poem, but they don't. You still got to sit down and say, where the heck is the next poem? So if I stop liking it, I guess I'd, you know, find something more rational to do, but um, I really enjoy it. And I, I, I do, as you suggest, uh, like the idea of constantly challenging myself to find new, different, I mean, poetry is huge. American poets, until recently, I think, have been very insular and didn't look to other languages, other cultures, other traditions to understand how big poetry is. But once you do, you realize what's been done, what's possible, what kinds of ideas and forms are there. And they're just like you try them. Sometimes, I mean, obviously, you fail a lot mm. of the time, but, but you know, trying is what is fun. Yeah, and someone already says, um, uh, Dick Westheimer says, I disagree. It's not always fun. It's often like wrestling with angels, which is important, but not always fun. Um, do you do you have that sense of struggle too? Is it is it difficult and frustrating at the same time as it's fun? Yes, of course. Um, and at some points, I think you need to wrestle the angel, or else maybe you're not doing enough. If you're just, you know, I mean, I think at one level, you know, you need to feel like poetry that with language, you're, you know, I have a strong memory. My one of my earliest memories is of like finger painting. I must be in maybe I'm in kindergarten or something. I don't know. And that literal feel of that gloppy, like yellow and green paint, and you smoosh it around with your hands. And it was like super fun. I'm sure I wasn't a very fantastic painting I created. And I kind of feel like with words, you need to have some of that kind of plastic joy in the language. The wrestling, the angel is a little bit outside of where the language operates to me. And that's the kind of thematic Mm -hmm. element. I mean, you know, in other words, I think you can have joy in writing the poem, even if what you're writing about is death, suffering, and tragedy, which obviously, you know, surrounds us now mm-hmm. more, as much as ever, yeah. but even more visibly so. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's hear uh, the next poem. Uh, what do you want to read next? Well, I'm, I'm still going to read another new poem. Um, I mean, new as in from the new section of this book. But since we just talked about joy and uh, kind of fooling around, I'm going to read a poem called My Music which is on page seven of the the nouns and verbs. My music. My music belongs to me and it is awesome. My music is way better than your music. Your music is trash, garbage stench of a hot summer night behind the dumpsters at Taco Bell, rancid, but I'm there too, drinking beers in the parking lot with the windows down and the radio tuned to a baseball game we are following as casually as the star's erratic flight plan. That music is my music, all of it, ball game, laughter of friends and the crack of frosty six packs, asphalt returning the day's heat to the sky. My music is so much better than your music, I pity you. Almost I would pity you if I were not disgusted by your chump change music. My music will beat your music to a pulp. My music will turn your music into a car wash run by infants. Their tiny hands can't even hold the sponges. They will never, ever degrease those tire rims. 
Get out of my business with that nightmare you call music, with your tears and pleading, the whining of excuses. Oh, sorry, that is your music. That crybaby boo-hoo-ry, that blurt, that diminuendo, that wah, that large ass mess, that chicken pot pie all pocked with freezer burn, that coyote hung from a fence post as a trophy and a caution. My music cannot be muted or dimmed. It cannot be labeled, disciplined, contained by manicured hedges. My music is the untamed wilderness of the soul. The rebar that holds up the skyscrapers of your city is my music. Watch out, your city will crumble to rubble without it. But don't worry, it wasn't much to begin with, that place you called home, with its measling river, its rusty bridges. There's a carnival in the meadow of the old floodplain. Cotton candy and whirligig lights and the racket rising up from the carousel is my music. Old guys fishing along the breakwater, coffee can, half full of fat, wriggling night crawlers. That worm thrum, that earth mouth echo is my music. The trinket in the bottom of the Cracker Jacks box is mine. The employee of the month parking space is mine. I am the little golden man on your bowling trophy. I am the nickels collected in your old pickle jars. I'm the U-Haul pulling out of the driveway, leaving your town forever. Goodbye, Loserville. Hello, New Hampshire, Alabama, Montana, Texas. I'm all those places. Everywhere you ever dreamed of going, I've been there and pissed on the phone poles already. I'm the names of all 50 states on your tongue. Their old English nostalgia and Amerindian prolixity and majuscule Latinate transliterations rolled together. I own the alphabet and the stars in the sky. I own the pigeons sleeping beneath the overpasses and the shadows of pine trees and the corn husks in a paper bag on the porch and the ants on the bottle of barbecue sauce. Ants all over the cupcakes and watermelon wedges, huge black carpenter ants and raspberry crazy ants and the almost invisible warp speed ants like cartoon swashbucklers of the microsphere. The footfall of the ants is my music. Oh yes, cacophonous, euphonious, that tumult, that mad march. Louder than circus elephants and softer than flowers opening, gentler than apple blossoms descending into creek water, petals falling, one, two, three, four. That was my so music. That's a, a noisy, cacophonous poem. Yeah, a great example of the fun that that you know we were talking about before. Um, um, so one of the things I was thinking about as you were reading that poem, um, there's that line about um, you know my music is this, and uh, it reminded me of the way that that some poets say. Um, you know, like I'm writing for myself, and this is like my poetry, and I don't care if you understand it. And it just made me think, how much do you feel like a poem is performative? Like when you're writing, how much are you thinking about how it's going to be received versus how much it's it's your own amusement and your own entertainment? Um, is it is it a performative act as you're writing? Uh, it's, it varies poem to poem. Mm-hmm. You know, one writes, I mean, there's there's whole poets whose work is, you know, so personal, it's inscrutable and and poets who are entirely performative or entirely, you know, kind of seem audience centered. And, and I, I range across that spectrum. And I, I, I think if you're not conscious of an audience at all, that's a little weird to me. Um, and if you're, and I think you can move too much towards, I mean, if you're humoring an audience or writing to, to please an audience, that's obviously, that's even worse. Mm-hmm. So it, it varies, you know, I have deep, deeply kind of personal poems that are not 
intended for any audience, but the, you know, whatever. And then that, but in a poem like that, that poem was really about, you know, that, that that's a poem about where, you, you know, it, the poem actually started with the notion of, of like the t people are always telling you, you know, oh man, I got this great band. You're going to love to listen to this kind of music. And you, and I'm always like smiling, like, uh-huh. And I'm already inside. I'm like, I'm going to hate this. I know that I don't like that music because what I like is better than whatever they're trying to push on me. And that's already my like default. And I'm like, why do I even think that? But then I was like, I just do. And I, and obviously the poem then switches to being about, you know, not just music, but poetry and everything. It's a kind of just becomes a triumphal, uh, egotistical rant, which I enjoyed. And, you know, I don't think a rant is really the greatest form for poetry. It, it can, it, it doesn't go that far, but, but in the course of writing that poem, I was enjoying myself so much <laughs> with the act of ranting and with the act of just drawing language out of different places that I just kind of stuck with it. Um, so can you explain about how you came into poetry? I'm always curious about that. And uh, and so I know, obviously, you, I mean, you love reading. That's kind of clear with how much, you know, history and different subjects you pull into poems. Um, but but why poetry? Why why is that the form that you ended up writing? I don't know, you know, is the short answer, because I do like, uh, I mean, I love reading. I mean, all, all writers start as readers, obviously. Um, and so it would be no surprise looking back in my life that I ended up somewhere engaged with words and reading, but why it would be poetry. Cause I was reading novels as a kid more than poems per se and history books and books about baseball players, whatever. Um, poetry kind of snuck in there. I liked poetry, but I, I, until I guess when I got into about high school, I, you know, really, with like reading Wall the Wallace Stevens poem in class, I was like, "That's really interesting." Um, it, it, it was clearly different than prose and storytelling and narratives. It was like there's something different going on here. Put put more emphasis on language per se and the actual words. Somehow, somehow picking picking words up and understanding they're not just their meaning, but they're they are kind of they have a objective value. And, you know, I don't, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that obviously as a 16 year old, but so I liked reading all sorts of stuff, maybe even novels mostly, but as a writer, writing stories was hard and cumbersome. And I, and I, and I really, I was too impatient to do the work of like setting up characters and stuff. I'm like, but I just want to start talking. I mean, and, and the, like the two poems I've read so far are just that they're like speech act. Here comes a voice and it's just talking at you. Mm -hmm. But that's what I like about poetry is that absolute immediacy. Um, it's really, it's really powerful. So I just started liking writing poetry when I was in high school. I did it in college. And then I learned about these mysterious things called MFA programs. So I got to the end of college. I was like, oh, you can just go down the poetry path. I, I really hadn't known that. So I guess I'll just try this. I'll go down this poetry path until, you know, like I hit a wall I can't climb over and then I'll, you know, find a real job. Uh -huh. <laughs> You never had to, I guess. Huh? I never had to. And that's, you know, very miraculous and really always surprises me. But <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel the exact same way. Um, let's hear another poem. So I got a bunch of poems I could read here. I'm trying to find something a little bit different. I'm going to read two little poems that are part of a longer poem um, in this first section of new poems. Again, the longer poem is called Sleepwork. Um, and it's kind of it's like 20 little fragments. And so Two of these poems in it are on page 30 and page 32. It's my library and then my justice, 30 and 32. So they're a little different. 
I mean, so this is a poem in which the fragments add up in a kind of mysterious way, but each one is almost its own small poem. So this first one's called My Library, and it's a prose poem too. My Library, assembled with such care over the decades, with its shelves of well-thumbed collected poems, its ponderous chronicles, tea-stained chapbooks, and paperbacks asterisked with mildew, after all these years, my library slips its anchor and sails ever more certainly into the past. Soon, even the methods and substance of its origin, paper and ink, the printing press, will resemble fragments of ash and animal bone in an ancient digging. Yet I feel no particular sense of regret that I will not live to see our futuristic tropes put to the final test, whatever dire exigency that might consist of. All I have ever wanted is to write a poem as ineradicable as the sun, singular as a wolf in its kingdom of moonlit ice. But who has time anymore for idle tasks? Why should anyone bother to adjudicate the petty crimes of language, border disputes between synonyms, lexical transgressions opaque as tax legislation? Pea vines are climbing the neighbor's trellis the kids are looking for a surfboard behind the garage. Wind rustles the branches, which respond with shrugs and apologetic bows. In the shelter of their anthologies, the poems talk softly in the darkness, huddled together for warmth, waiting. And on the next page, page 32, My Justice. <clears throat> my justice will not be found in a bullet or a bottle or the paper arc of any poem. Hives can't hold enough bees to pollinate all the wildflowers watered by human tears. The stone of your pain, no matter how tightly you squeeze it, will never yield enough to quench anybody's thirst. Go on now, go back to bed, get back to work. Return to the dream swarm, harvesting the nectar of whatever it is you love enough to have risked this journey into darkness for. That was more from uh, nouns and verbs. That was from sleep work. Um, and, and it's interesting. I don't know if, how intentional it was that a lot of the poems in the new section um, address, you know, poetry itself and writing itself. Um, was that something that was going on when you were writing the book? Like you knew you were putting together a new and selected. And so you were looking over your, your, your sweep of what you've written and, and how you relate to it now? Yeah, to some degree, towards the end of the process, mm -hmm. yes. Um, also, it just, you know, it's a kind of age and stage thing. Once you've written 10 books, you become, there's a, there's a danger in self-consciousness, you know, but, but you just become more, one thing that I know a hell of a lot about now is about writing poetry. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've done it single-mindedly, you know, kind of since I was 16 or 18 years old. So at some point, I mean, I, I, I'm a kind of information processor poet. Like if I know about driving the highways, I write about driving the highways, but I also know a lot about poetry. And so when, anything I know, anything that's in my head, I try to turn it into a poem. So there's a lot of poems that are either consciously or unconsciously about poetry land, about writing poetry. So more of those crept in. But yeah, in, in some sense, I had maybe excluded some of them from earlier books, you know, and said, well, this book's about X, Y, or Z. This book's more mm -hmm. historical, so why would I be doing that action? But um, 
in fact, so it's a little bit happenstance, but there is definitely a sense that a bunch of those poems either overtly or covertly are talking about poetry and writing. Yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting book in the way. I've never seen a new one selected come together like this. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about, um, since you do have all these different styles of poetry, um, Andrew had been thinking about it in this in this book. Um, uh, what is the definition? You touched on it before, but like, how would you define poetry? Like, what's different? You write a lot of prose poems. People always ask me every time we send a a prose poem in the daily email. I get f- fifteen people say, "Why is this a poem?" And uh, a lot of times, just if it's not metered and rhymed, people will say, you know, that's just prose with line breaks if they don't have the ear for the internal rhyme and things that are going on. Um, but but what what is it that's a poem? Like, what is a poem? Why is that different from, from prose, especially when you're writing so many prose poems, too? Um, well, there's no, uh, there's no Geiger counter to, you know, prove that the poem is or isn't radioactive. You know, uh, it's... It's subjective, and so that's one of the reasons that argument, you know, keeps circulating. But again, like when I was starting to write poetry, like in the '70s and the '80s, prose poems were still like, "Whoa, that's a wild, desperate, you know, risky thing to do. Only like Europeans, you know, or Latin Americans try that." You know why? I don't know. But now, I, at least in amongst poets, there it's understood there's such a thing as a prose poem. So part of a lot of a lot of this is like this resistance of people who just resist change and whose understanding of a thing defines their understanding of it. But you know, especially that about rhyme and meter. First of all, rhyme and meter is it's a is a more or less of a created and not in fact intrinsic to the English language. That that history is was fabricated, but um, it certainly was the tradition. So you need to know it to be a knowledgeable reader of poetry in the English language. But there's no there's no reason that you have to write that way. It couldn't be more self-evident. What makes a poem a poem? One of the most essential things that makes a poem a poem, or the if you had to pick out one element, is closure. Hmm. So, like this is I think particularly true with prose poems. A lot of prose prose poems start the way maybe a great and people often pull like for instance the beginning of a tale of two cities was the best of times was the worst of times was this you know a piece of prose writing by Dickens that has parallelism and all these kind of tropes and structures like a poet might use. But that's just the first paragraph and it continues. It doesn't close. A prose poem in particular has to have a closural strategy that feels to people like, oh, it's over in the way that poems end. Now, poems don't end just one way. They, uh, a formal poem might end just with rhyme, just with a sonic closure. Poems can end with sonic structural, metaphorical, narrative, uh, intellectual, like there's a sense of a thing having come to a close. Everything ends, but only some things close with closure, right? I mean, there's a car alarm eventually shutting off is the end of a noise, but it's not closure, right? Mm -hmm. A a Mozart symphony ending is closure. You hear it, your mind is trained or innately understands a set of motifs uh, themes and musical structures have been worked through, and that's the ending place. So that's particularly important in, I think, every poem. But again, having said that, you've hardly said anything because there's so many different ways to end poems that feel satisfying. That, you know, what about haiku? One of my very favorite forms of poetry. You know, Basho, I think, is you know probably the greatest poet ever. That that notion doesn't apply at all, and yet. Haiku are all wonderful, uh, you know, terrific thing. Uh, what about the Odyssey? That's not about closure either. That's well, it, it, to agree it is. It's about narrative closure, though, right? It's about Odysseus's life coming to place and an end of a certain thing. But 
So closure is extremely important in defining a poem. Obviously, all the other stuff we always talk about, metaphor, figurative language, linguistic intensity, lyricism, imagery, all these things are true. But people hate things that can't be perfectly defined, that aren't, you know, black and white and provable. And that's, and that's why they're constantly like picking it. That's not even a poem. Like, okay. <laughs> well, to me, um, and I'm just going to run this by you. My, my feeling is that poetry, it's defined because the medium is the breath. I mm-hmm. think that's how I would define poetry. Like a poem is something, even if it's prose, that wants to be, it's like an act of creation that wants to be spoken out loud. And, and the rhythms of the body and the breath are part of the poem, you know, the sentence structure, the heartbeat of the, the rhythms of the poem, things like that. Um, and, and to me that, and, and so prose is more like in your mind than in your breath when you read it. And, um, and so that, that's how I define it. It's like the music of breath or something like that. Would, I, would, I that, would that. that fit with I, you? I agree with that entirely. Or, or, or I mean, I, I wouldn't, that's a very interesting way of, of coming at it. I, I would certainly agree with the notion that Poetry on the page is like a two-dimensional art form, and poetry aloud is the three-dimensionality of it, mm-hmm. which is not true of prose. Even 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 great writing, nobody would nobody wants to sit and hear uh, War and Peace read aloud. You know, even though it's beautiful, it's not essential to it. But mm-hmm. a poem, even a poem you've read many times, heard read aloud, you see your your mind is, becomes conscious of that element of breath and of the body intrinsically attached to it because poetry does spring from the tongue and is bodily i completely agree with that thought and that's another complexity because we have poets who are kind of all body and all mind and the key is you actually have to have attention between the two Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think of um you know reading a poem is like sight reading music you know like like it's not it's not the music itself it's the it's the thing that generates the music or you know so i don't know And that's my conception. But the idea of closure is, is really interesting, too. Um, but anyway, let's, let's hear the next poem. What do you want to do next? Sure. Well, let's see. Um, I'm going to uh, now read a couple. You know, we got time for a couple more. A couple from my body of work, which is, say, the most of this selected poem. So let's read a poem called Capitalist Poem Number 5 on page 61. This is, for me, kind of the er poem where I first poem I wrote when I was in graduate school that kind of made me understand what I was going to be doing as a poet. Interesting. Capitalist poem number five. I was at the 7-Eleven. Did I tell you it's on page 61? I'm sorry, Tim. Uh, actually, randomly, I had it flipped to that already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was at the 7-Eleven. I ate a burrito. I drank a Slurpee. It was late after work, washing dishes. The burrito was good. I had another. I did it every day for a week. I did it every day for a month. To cook a burrito, you tear off the plastic wrapper. You push button number three on the microwave. Burritos are large, small, or medium. Red or green chili peppers. Beef or bean or both. There are 7-Elevens all across the nation. On the way out, I bought a quart of beer for $1.39. I was aware of social injustice in only the vaguest possible way. And that was Capitalist Poem Number 5. And and I'm glad you read that. That was one of the ones I wanted to ask you about, um, because that's one of the poems that people people mention the most about your work. Um, and it's such a simple poem. I don't know if it's history, if it was like anthologized a lot, and that's why, or if it just resonates with people spontaneously, and that's why. But a lot of people have brought up 
that Seven Eleven poem. Um, and and so and you mentioned uh, that it was what told you what you were trying to do somehow. So so could you explain that? Like how is it that like what did you learn in the process of writing that poem? I learned that like my own life was the sub was a was a fit subject for poetry and not just like you know a painting you saw in a in a famous art gallery that someone told you write a sonnet about it um because i guess the kind of teaching i'd had mostly had a more had more of that element to it let's write a sonnet about you know i don't know what the the last supper like okay i could i'll try that but you know a 500 years of really good poets have been doing that and b i have nothing to add to that conversation i don't know anything i'm not thing but i do so there was a kind of like but what so what do I know about? I mean, I kind of was a self-questioning. What what do I know? When I say I don't know about that, what do I know about? Like I know about the 7-Eleven because that's what I do with my life. I, you know, I go to the 7-Eleven. And I think one of the reasons that poem has resonated is it was much rarer to write a poem about a 7-Eleven in 19, what year did I write that poem? 1985, you know, when I wrote that poem than it is now. I mean, pop culture was still like, as we say, the prose poem was viewed as wild and crazy and writing poems about pop culture was still somehow subversive almost, it, which is, it, it, the, there's so much traditionalism in poetry and it's kind of crazy, but, mm-hmm. and I said, okay, that's something I know about. It's really elemental to me. It's like the first store I could walk to when I was a kid was to 7-Eleven, you know, five blocks away and buy baseball cards or what have you. So, and consumerism and capitalism is the world that we know in ways we sometimes see, but often even the things we're not conscious of everything has been defined by it. So I said, okay, then I also need to write it like in the most stripped down elemental, I was this, I was that kind of Williams, Carlos Williams, but even more, you know, kind of simple minded than that structure and just say this thing that seems to me like a truth. What do I, what do I know that I think is true? That's what I was kind of saying to myself, as opposed to just like, I can throw words at the wall and make fancy structures. What do I think is a true thing? And it's this, I did these things. And I know that doing that, you know, I know that that the act of consume of the act of participating in American consumer culture narcotizes us to deeper truths about justice and what's happening in the world, because we just walk through the steps of being an American. I bought this, I did that, I paid my bill, and it's all designed and also just naturally falls that you're so engaged in that world that these larger realities of justices and troubles remain invisible to you unless you are forced to observe them. Yeah. How so, much, yeah. How much of that was conscious? I mean, the, the thing about that poem, the, the end seems like such a turn in that poem, you know, like it feels so surprising, although it inevitable at the same time, it's one of those great, just set up punchline kind of poems. Did, did you know that was coming as you started writing it? Do you remember? Yeah. And no, I didn't know. I was like, okay, so if I know this, if I know the Seven Eleven, what, what is it I think I know? Mm-hmm. And again, it was like that testing that premise in myself. Well, oh, what kind of burritos are there? I was thinking of a summer where I worked as a dishwasher in high school. And like literally every day I'd get off the bus by the 7-Eleven and buy my burrito, microwave it. And, you know, that was like my dinner. And it's like, well, sometimes you switch. I'll get the green chili pepper. I mean, it's obviously all the same. It's made in some factory. It's not even food, but you eat it. And I was like, okay, blah, blah, blah. so you push button number three. And that, you know, litany of listing those really stupid little actions in the kind of cadence of poetry is itself, you know, kind of interesting. So, and then at the end, I was like, so what, so I I think it was self-questioning, like, well, what does this add up to? You did all these things and you bought your beer. 
what were you, you know, were you conscious of anything? The point was no. And then somehow I, I kind of just stumbled into that. I was aware of it, I say, but in only the vaguest possible way. Like I, I guess I knew that world was larger than me pushing this button, but I didn't really think about it. I just marched through my steps. And I, I, I certainly was aware of thinking about capitalism and consumerism that way, you know, kind of intellectually mm -hmm. um, at that point in time, but I hadn't thought about it internally, personally. And I realized then, oh yeah, my life just trained me to be a part of this culture, this consumerist culture without ever questioning it. Because if you ever question it, you have a lot of questions and see a lot of problems, but you know, that's, there's this huge amount of, cultural energy expended in telling you don't question it. That's, you know, that now I'm, you know, so I'm, I mean, that poem describes, you know, me as an 18 year old and now I'm 60 years old. So I've now thought about that stuff in much more structured intellectual ways to understand it. But I think that was about saying, oh, even intrinsically then at 18, there was something at work that I couldn't quite, I wasn't yet quite aware of, but there was something nagging at me. Like there's mm -hmm. something weird about this, just going to 7-Eleven doing this. There's something unusual but it is my life. I know this, I will set this down. I don't know anything about the Mona Lisa, for instance. So, you know, actually there's one thing I know about the Mona Lisa, having heard that poem earlier, which it wasn't mentioned in that poem or in this recounting of the episodes. In the book I wrote called XX, Poems for the 20th Century, Pablo Picasso is a frequent character in that mm -hmm. book. At one point, Picasso and Apollinaire were, were accused of stealing the Mona Lisa. Oh, really? This is an actual historical episode that oh. some, for some reason nobody seems to know about or remember. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard that either. Um, but I, I loved hearing the explanation of that, of the Catalyst poem number five, because it feels like it's a perfect poem to explain the way that poetry is a tool for meaning. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a way that we sort of find meaning through language. And I think that's a poem that does that very, very clearly. Um, and, and, you know, the way it is drawn out sort of simply um, is a really cool example of how poems work in that way. Um, and in itself, you know, you have to think it first works as self-knowledge. You know, you first come to it and then hopefully, possibly a reader, you know, experiences the same thing. And then you've shared that experience. Yeah. Uh, well, if anybody has any questions for Campbell, um, please leave them in the chat windows on YouTube or Facebook. and I will pass them along. But let's hear another poem. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we should... Uh, Curate a, a poem in the same vein, longer winded. I mean, like maybe I'll avoid being long winded. It's something that comes very naturally to me. Let me uh, just read a, a personal kind of a poem instead. Then, I mean, in other, in other words, having read Capitalist Poem Number Five, it would be possible to describe my my entire career as like repeating Capitalist Poem Number Five in larger and larger kind of forms. But but here's a poem that is different. It's on page fifty three. It's called The Human Heart. It's different in that it's a it's a it's a formal poem. It's kind of it's a kind of an invented form, but it's got a rhyme scheme and it's a, a personal lyric. The human heart. We construct it from tin and ambergris and clay, ochre, graph paper, a funnel of ghosts, whirlpool in a downspout full of midsummer rain. It is, for all its freedom and obstinance, an artifact of human agency in its maverick intricacy, its chaos reflected in earthly circumstance, its appetites mirrored by a hungry world, like the lights of the casino in the coyote's eye. Old as the odor of almonds in the hills around Solano, filigreed and chanceled with flavor of blood oranges, 
fashioned from moonlight, yarn, nacre, cordite, shaped and dissembled valve by valve, flange by flange, and finished with the carnal fire of interstellar dust. We build the human heart and lock it in its chest and hope that what we have made can save us. And that was the human heart from, uh, from nouns and verbs, new and selected poems. Um, so, um, um, I wanted to ask about about Florida too, because Florida, you're not from Florida, but you you, you have that book of Florida poems, and Florida well, is such an interesting time. place. Um, yeah. And and I was wondering, you know, I, I think the poems came out before um, that whole concept of the Florida man became a meme. Oh, it did, yeah, it did. But well, uh, I would have definitely written a poem called Florida Man had that <laughs> had that conceit been out there. So, what is it about Florida that makes it? I mean, it, what brought you there in the first place? And then, uh, and what makes it such an unusual place? Because it is, it's a strange place. Weird. Yeah, I've lived there thirty years now. I mean, I've lived there longer than I lived anywhere else. I mean, I've you know, I mostly lived in big cities, and then you know, I'd lived in in New York and Chicago and Washington DC and, and, but, um, I've now lived 30 years in Miami, which is certainly a big city, but a very different kind of place, different from anywhere. It's really a weird place in a weird state. Yeah. Florida is really cool. I like Florida because it's so wild and, you know, it's a, it's a frontier, you know, in a kind of literal way and that there, you know, you, you still see primordial nature like the Everglades and our desire to bulldoze it and turn it into golf courses, you know, kind of enacted, which is interesting, which you don't see anymore in Chicago, say. Um, and culturally, it's a frontier. I mean, you know, the problem is I, I've been in Florida 30 years and I was very optimistic at first that like, look, Miami, if Miami is a model for American future, it's great. It's multicultural, it's multilingual, it's very tolerant of that diversity um and you know i'm like wow this is this is a future that's coming into being and then somehow the culture has taken a u-turn and gone the exact opposite direction not not because of florida per se but florida's participated in that so it is and you know I, I think it's like like if you pick up the country and shake it like this everything all the weird stuff falls down to the bottom and that's <laughs> florida that's you know that's one theory i don't know it's just oddball land Mm -hmm. um but you know i can't explain it it is very striking how anytime you read a truly odd news story the you know the odds are like 75 percent that it occurred in florida which i i don't know but even even baseline florida is weird yeah i mean it just seems so perfect for you to live there uh, as a poet in the style that you are which is to to be reading about strange things and writing in, in a fun way about them um, I, you know, I moved there not thinking I'd be there for 30 years. I thought, oh, we'll go to Florida. I moved there. You say, why did I go there? I, you know, because I got hired teaching at an MFA program in Miami. And I had liked Miami. I knew, you know, I visited it. I thought it was cool and weird. And in the 1980s, when I moved there, it was a very different place. Um, was it 1980s? No, it was the 1990s, around 1990. Um, and it was, uh, you know, much poor. It was a poor you know, kind of downtrodden city. And now it's got, it still actually is a poor immigrant city at heart, mm -hmm. but it has this very, very obvious veneer of wealth that's now been incredibly exaggerated over time. So anyway, I, I ended up staying there because it is so, it's so beautiful. It's very, I do value the the diversity that you really feel like you have one, one tiny foot in the United States and another foot in, in the kind of Latin American independent republic. 
And that's just to me very, very interesting. So it's, it's, I've really enjoyed living there and agree that it also jibes with my kind of desire to write about American culture. It's just that what I thought I saw dawning in American culture, you know, we, we've, we've not only, it still exists. It's still there. It's just been drowned out by this, you know, other rhetoric of, mm-hmm. of hatred and intolerance. Uh, well, do you want to read one of those Florida poems? Um... Yeah, I do. Um, uh, the one I would one I would choose to read is called the Zebra Longwing, but it's it's more of a it's a love poem really as opposed to a Florida poem. But it talks about Florida. It's set in Florida too, and it's from my book Florida Poems originally, and it's on page ninety seven. Okay, cool. Nouns and verbs. Zebra Longwing. It's kind of a poem. I would say it's distinctly a poem in like the James Wright tradition. James Wright being one of my favorites, one of many people's favorites, and it's a love poem about moving to Florida, and it's. It, it describes an incident of butterflies coming to roost and live in our backyard, which is like a real thing that happens, which who knew that? I didn't. So, And the zebra longwing is the state butterfly of Florida. The zebra longwing. Forty years I've waited, uncomprehending, for these winter nights, when the butterflies fold themselves like paper cranes to sleep in the dangling roots of the orchids boxed and hung from the live oak tree. How many there are, six, eight, eleven. When I missed the spikes and blossoms by moonlight, they stir but do not wake, antennaed and dreaming of passion flower nectar. Never before have they gifted us in like manner. Never before have they stilled their flight in our garden. Wings have borne them away from the silk of the past as surely as some merciful wind has delivered us to an anchorage of such abundant grace, Elizabeth. All my life I have searched without knowing it for this moment. That was the zebra long wing. Again, we're in in, uh, nouns and verbs, the new and selected book. Um, So we have a bunch of questions here. Uh, One of them from um, um, Cindy Gore is a kind of craft question we've never talked about on the show, um, just because I don't know how to ask a question about this, but, but she asked if you could talk about word choice. And and how I mean, what goes into the a specific word and and how do you how do you think of that? Well, you know, uh, one thing is that you know, plasticity words. I mean, you say I mean, I, and I use my finger painting analogy. Of course, we don't actually touch words with our fingers; we touch them with our tongue and in our mouth. I mean, words feel in your mouth, right? Like you say, majuscule, Latinate, whatever. You, you're using all that rich flowing romance language part of our language and then you can say really guttural harsh germanic anglo-saxon words they feel different they are totally different texturally they sound different they connote differently so you know there first of all there's that basic binary of the anglo-saxon germanic half of our language and then the latinate that's brought in all those words connote differently they feel differently but they're they're sonically different right you know uh a word like you know the word graveyard is the same as the word cemetery, but cemetery is the flowing Latinate version and graveyard, or, you know, that's how Anglo-Saxons made things. Grave, yard, graveyard, boom. We put these two little nouns together, very guttural and harsh, that's very descriptive. Cemetery is just a, you know, Latin construction. So you chew on the words, you know, instead of instead of touching them with your hands like finger mm-hmm. you kind of chew on them and say, oh, that's a good one. You know, and then, you know, again, I, I used to, unlike, parents work day visit my kids schools and bring in like you know big dictionaries say look i'm a poet so i have these dictionaries 
Now you don't need the dictionary. Now you'd be an idiot if you brought that to a second grade <laughs> class. They'd say, what are, what are those? Because you just go online and you say, wait, what's, a, what's another synonym for you know, graveyard? And, and 50 words can come to your attention. And then you maybe find one of those like, oh yeah, that word. And then you can actually deep dive into that word and actually go find out where does that word come from anyway? What, what else is engaged there? So I think the internet is a great tool for helping you explore linguistic options. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can actually just literally pick, you know, theoretically you're picking each word in your poem up and like, you know, after you've written it and examining it, is that the perfect word? Okay. Put it back if it is. And if not say, what are my other choices? What's a better, I'll say one more thing about word choice. Verbs are the key word group in writing nouns. You know, mostly a butterfly is a butterfly uh, and a potato is a potato, but there's a million ways to describe actions you know, subtle ways, metaphorical ways, obvious ways, unusual ways. Uh, and mostly, you know, adjectives, you don't even need them. You can have them, but, you, you know, they're, they're, they're extras. Verbs are the key word. If you're thinking about how do I make my poem better through word choice, focus on your verbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great advice. It's one of the ones that comes up a lot in our critiques every Friday is that, you know, I mean, adjectives are just the weakest and then nouns are the next weakest and <laughs> verbs are where it's at. Um, yeah. and, and don't drop your articles because that's how they have function words fit sentences together musically that's always our, our advice on, on yeah, words yeah yeah um let's see there's another question here uh, from it's interesting from potter o'donohue he says i always feel uh that the best poetry is full of doubt uncertainty a lack of confidence campbell seems so full of confidence did this take time was it gained via success or was it always there well i think it was always there you know, which again is for, for better and worse. Um, I'm very confident. Um, first of all, I'm a different human being than I am on the page. On the page, I'm extremely confident. I'm also much smarter than I am as a real person on the page and more engaged and more, you know, everything. I mean, like whenever anyone asks me my opinion of anything, my first thought is to say, have I ever written a poem about this? Because if so, I go back to that and then, then I know what I actually think about a thing. Because if I wrote it, I know I really mean it and I know I'm trying to be, that's my truth statement about it. Whereas I'll just say all sorts of nonsense, you know, and then say, I don't know if I really mean that, but I just said it. But if I wrote it, I really believe it. So yeah, but uh, confidence on the page is, it's just like saying, you know, Pablo Picasso is a very confident artist on the canvas. Mm-hmm. There's never any question. doesn't mean they're all good. I mean, there's a lot of absolute garbage, you know, thrown out there, but like, there was never any self-doubt in Picasso's mind on the canvas as a person. He was a you know wreck and a nightmare. But um, so yeah, I think I I think I mostly had that confidence on the page, even when I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but that doesn't mean that doubt doesn't trigger the desire to write poems. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean? Yeah. The notion of saying I want to make a poem. Because if you really were full of confidence, why would you write a poem in the first place? You'd say, I'm just going to go, you know, chop down trees and conquer the universe. So uh, the idea that you're going to write poems at all is about a questioning of the universe, right? I mean, either, you know, it's about, again, what a, poetry is still gainfully about the soul and not, not nothing left in our society even, you know, would take that word seriously. So I think poems are about doubt and about questioning, even if then when you create your artifact, it's confident looking on the page. Also keep in mind that confidence is really just a trope. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can you can enact confidence on the page, just as you can enact doubt and self-questioning on the page. It's not necessarily the truth of that artist's experience. 
Yeah, yeah. Well put. Um, I think we have time for two more poems, maybe. So, what do you want for your second last to last poem? Second to last poem. Okay. Um, let's read. You know, I, I was trying to. Uh, I was. I didn't. You know, this book was characterized a lot by its Americanness. How about I read it a little slightly? It's not a longer than what I've read. I'm going to read one. We might only have time for one poem, in other words, because I'm going to read this poem called Since I'm in New Jersey, uh, where I spend my summers. I read a poem about New Jersey. It's called Tabernacle, New Jersey. It's a poem I I'm almost never read. That's one of the reasons I want to read it. It's on page 127. It's a big, long-ish prose poem about American place identity and history, which is something I really write about all the time. I don't think I've really read a poem today that addresses that. So... Here it is, Tabernacle, New Jersey. Tabernacle, New Jersey is not the place I thought it was. All these years crossing the dwarf pine coastal midlands, the map of New Jersey gone AWOL from the road atlas, what I'd remembered as Tabernacle was actually Chatsworth, two old colonial towns, 10 miles apart, peas in a pod. Nothing could be more similar and nothing could be more distinct. Chatsworth, I guess, was named by the homesick for a town left behind in England. While tabernacle implies not only a house of worship, but a sanctuary and a shelter, a dwelling place and a covenant, an immaculate coal in the hearth of the new world, invested today in exurban restoration, garden, garden centers and antique marts, new subdivisions in the old peach orchards, the historic church signed and posted for day trippers out from Philadelphia, Tabernacle is a sign of things to come, while Chatsworth is purely a thing of the past, a place so momentary its passage is forgotten even before its official contemplation. Was that it? Ramshackle houses set back beneath shade trees, front porches sagged and winded, a poster for the annual barbecue and turkey shoot at the Antler Hall, a roadhouse and general store at the crossroads of the Pine Barrens, that comical backwater of forgotten towns, Batstow and Ong's Hat, Leak Town and Double Trouble, so named when muskrats gnawed through the town dam two times in a single month. Muskrats, twice. What I like about Chatsworth is its sandy transience, its ageless and indelibly American dereliction. People came to Chatsworth, lived for a while and moved on. They settled down, hunted deer, kilned bricks, scrounged the deposits of pig iron from the soil, harvested the cranberry bogs, chopped down the pine trees and burned them for charcoal, raised up kids for a generation or two, then headed out for greener pastures, taking Chatsworth with them and leaving Chatsworth behind. A town like Chatsworth could be anywhere, right at home among tired tidewater tobacco fields or the chicken houses of the Eastern shore, along the old wagon roads, at some ford of the Potomac, the Susquehanna, the Delaware, the James, anywhere at all in the majestic and underappreciated mid-Atlantic region, which is home to me, central and definitive. Though for that matter, you could find Chatsworth and most of Appalachia and scattered throughout the South and into the riverine Midwest, Ohio and Illinois and Missouri and Iowa and so on into the plains and following the Oregon Trail across the mountains and into the apple orchards, the Pacific Northwest, even in the altogether unnatural badlands of Utah, where once lonely to the point of desperation, I passed through just such a place on a Sunday afternoon when the volunteer firemen's picnic was in progress. 
a group of families eating hot dogs and buttered corn, some kids with red and yellow balloons, people waving in kindly invitation as I slowed to a crawl and thought about stopping and drove on. Listen, I've driven all over this country. I've spun the odometers of a dozen bad cars. I don't know how many road atlases I've worn to sacrificial shreds, but in each and every one, New Jersey opens like a flower, dead center, stapled twice through the heart. Thus it is median and first to weaken, until one sad and inevitable day the garden state disappears forever, lost blossom of weary abandonment. Which is why for all these years I mistook Chatsworth for tabernacle, driving blind across the heart of the state to our cherished summer weeks at the shore, stopping for tomatoes at the Green Top Market for frozen yogurt at the dairy bar in Red Lion, steering by memory from landmark to landmark along 206 or 70, 532 or 563. It hardly matters which road you take. It hardly matters the number or the sign because even without a map, I can find it, nameless or mistaken, bypassed or misplaced, past or future, beginning or end, north or south or east or west, because Chatsworth is everywhere and Chatsworth is everything. Dwelling place, covenant, congregation, tabernacle. And a great prose poem of place. That was uh, Tabernacle, New Jersey uh, from Nouns and Verbs. Um, there are a few questions uh, about just the revision process and, and mm. how you write. So Jackie McManus wanted to know how much you revise and how much research goes on during the process of writing poems. And then... Um, and Leslie Frazier asks um, later a little differently, um, do you have reams of poetry that never see the light of day? And do you go back and rework those? And do you ever just let them go? Um, well, those are, yeah, those are all great questions and are very and interrelated. Uh, yeah, I write lots of poems that, I write tons of stuff. Is it going to be a poem? I don't always know, you know, I mean, or I'm thinking it's a poem and then it turned out to be, but yeah, I go back through that. I go back through that stuff. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, I teach so I'm on an academic calendar, so I have, you know, busy periods of work and then open periods, especially like summers or if I'm off for a time. And during that time, I, love, I go back, you know, your notebooks are your greatest treasure as a writer. You got you to gotta keep a really active notebook of ideas, images, thoughts, words, and, and you go back and mine that stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, especially as you get older and your memory is less perfect than it was when you're like 25 years old. You say, oh, that was a really good idea for a poem I had there. Why did I never do it? And now, now I can do it. Um, I'll pick it up. I'll, I'll work on it. So I write a lot. I try to make everything work. I fail. So I have bunches of stuff that doesn't see the light of day. Yes. But I don't, I, I don't know that I might not yet find a way to revise it and turn it into something, you know, it's just kind of in the, you know, in the freezer for now. Um, I do a ton of research because I, again, I'm a closet historian. If I, if I wasn't a poet, I would not want to be a novelist. I'd want to be a historian or a kind of a cultural anthropologist that that stuff is amazes me. And but the cool thing about being a poet is I can be a historian and a cultural anthropologist, like as in that last poem, I can, you know, I can, but I don't have to do the hard work of archivally researching and all. I can read the good old books that those guys do, the historians, and cull what I want and, and lay it out there, you know, and, and po poeticize and lyricize it. So um, I, I, you know, a poem like that poem there's some, there's, there's some research in that poem, but I probably basically knew that American history, but didn't really go into arch details, but writing poems, I'll, I'll do a lot of research. If it's, I mean, I've written a whole book length historical poem and that's research-based or that 20th century book is a hundred poems of the 20th century. That's all, that, that book is pure research. 
So you got to write out of yourself, your own understanding of the world, your own experience, but you can write out of your intellectual interests too, because research is a thing. You can master it through the you know imaginative act of, of reading. Yeah, great answer. Um, so let's let's do one last poem. I think we have time. I don't know if there's one you specifically want to read, or um, I have a, sig- a request if you don't. What, what is it? What's your request? I wanted to hear, I, I, when I came across this poem, uh, Guns and Roses, that poem about Sweet Child of Mine. Oh, yeah. I loved that poem years ago when I found it and totally forgot about it. So I come across this poem toward the end of the book, and um, and I just love that poem. Yeah, okay. I'd like to read that poem. It's... Um... It's a poem that uh, I, I still like a lot because I like, you know, I like music and I like American culture. There's actually, there's a, my friend Bruce has mentioned this poem. I'm going to see Bruce and give a reading with him in New York in a couple of weeks. So um, he's a Californian. You're, you're in California, right? I am, yeah, Southern California. Yeah, this, is a, this is an L.A. poem. I love L.A. and used to spend a lot of time there when I was young. I don't anymore. It's a but, 204 um, if you're looking for it. Say again? Two, page 204, if you're looking for it in the book. Yeah, no, 204. I just stumbled into it. Yeah. Okay. Guns and Roses. And it's in memory of Tim Dwight, um, a friend who died of AIDS in the 90s. Guns and Roses. Not a mea culpa, not an apology, but an admission. There are three minutes in the middle of Sweet Child of Mine that still, for all the chopped cotton of the passing years, for all the muddled victories and defeats of a lifetime, for all the grief and madness and idiocy of our days, slay me, just slay me. They sound like how it felt to be alive at that instant, how it was to walk the streets of Manhattan in that era of caviar and kill-hungry feedback. The Big Apple so candy-coated with moral slush and easy money, even the corporate heavyweights could fashion no defense against decay. All the homeless encamped over cold coffee at Dunkin' Donuts on Upper Broadway. Even McDonald's become a refugee camp for victims of the unacknowledged war fought beneath the giddy banners of corporatization as the decades spun down its drain of self-delusion. Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we go now? What a glorious passage. A shimmering bridge embodying everything rock and roll aspires to be, heroic and violent and joyous and juvenile and throbbing with self-importance and percolating with melodrama and thrilled and scared by its own anthemic power, by the kid on a scooter, freedom and the hill a lot steeper than it seemed at first glance. What the hell? Rust never sleeps, live and let die, etc., etc. And whenever I hear that song become now a classic of the genre, even as it suffuses me with nostalgia for those days of malt liquor and barbecue chips, it gives me cause to think of Axl Rose in his purgatory self-assembled from paranoia and Malibu chaparral, wrestling exotic demons, kickboxing with Jesus, binding and gagging his women with duct tape in the closet. Much the way the heavy metal mentality of the time seized and militarized his music, Sonic warriors blasting Paradise City at the Panamanian dictator. Welcome to the jungle for the Waco cultists. Slash and Axel circling the globe, leveling ancient civilizations with power cords and teenage emotions from the halls of Mentholiptus to the shores of MTV. That's one of the favorite lines I ever wrote, by the way. And if Axel appears almost Nixonian in his anguish, 
at least he's not Kurt Cobain, forsaken and baby-faced as J. Michael Pollard in the episode of Lost in Space, where Penny goes through the mirror to a realm of demoniacal toys and that metaphysical bear monster, cousin to the troglodytes that chased Raquel Welch up the cavern tree in one million years B.C., death in its many B-movie guises, so much gaudier than the killers that walk the streets among us, the needle and the dollar, the gun and the rose. And the last time we saw Tim at Bruce's place in the Hollywood Hills, he recalled the first time we'd all hung out together in New York, Halloween, 1985. Provincial immigrants tossing back bourbon and tequila, Tim holding a bundle of ecstasy for some dealer, a drug I'd never even heard of, which instead of trying to market, he handed around with cavalier generosity. Packets of powder doused in the tall cans of Colt 45 we drank as we walked the streets of the village amid the disintegrating drifts and dregs of the parade. And finally, a midnight show at the Ritz, some LA bands the girls adored, done up in blacklight fluorescence, dancing and stage diving, jubilant and hallucinatory, getting home somehow on a subway serviced by orange-vested trolls before waking to cold sweat and hangover candy and a day of recuperation and the desire to do it all again. Because there was plenty of time we knew or thought we knew or were simply too stupid not to know we didn't know at all. Time to waste or kill before the crashes and commitments that would doom or save or cast us back into the tide pools of the westering continent. Tim was still laughing, hauntingly frail, but what I thought looking out across the canyon was how badly Los Angeles had aged, wanton and careworn, like a faded child star sickled with cosmetic surgery scars, still dreaming of a comeback, still scheming and groveling, as if to prove that nothing really dies in America, but is merely removed from the shelves for repackaging, coming back crisper and crunchier, cholesterol-free, as even Axl Rose is coming back with Tommy Stinson on base and a sideman wearing a KFC bucket like a Spartan helmet. And I wish that I could lay the blame for Axel's fucked up life on the feral orphanhood of the Pax Atomica. The alienation of lives begun with no expectation of completion. It would be simpler that way for all of us, but the world did not end in a vortex of toxic fire. The flying fortresses have returned from the stratosphere and the missiles endure their nightmares mutely in dark silos and we have no excuse for the arrogance of power, but the arrogance of power for our narcissism, and no solace but the merciless amplitude of our din. And that was it. The moment had passed. Another gem or tear for the cut glass diadem of passing years. Someone cranked the music up. Someone made a toast to the pool lights and glitter. And then the pixies begin some riff-rife, fully surfable rifle shot of a theme song announcing the ironic revival of our childhood, swaggering like Tony the Tiger atop a station wagon at an Esso station in 1964. Tony the Tiger, back from the dead, eldritch and transcendent, rise the immortals, rise to grasp the silver handles of the casket in procession before us. Ultraman and Astro Boy and Mr. Clean and the man from Glad and Josie and the Pussycats on the Rose Bowl float with their God bless America batons a twirl and then, huh, cue the horns, take it down, break it all apart and start 
from nothing to garb our nakedness with sheets of beaten gold, causing us with grieving blossoms, anoint us with honey in the dry riverbed, and tell me, O oh, great devourer, O oh, master of thorns and ashes, where do we go now? Yeah, that's just great. I just love the the, the maximalism, all the stuff in that poem, and then where it funnels down to good stuff. Thanks so much for being a guest, Campbell. It's great to talk to you and, and meet you for the first time. It's really been a pleasure. Um, everybody's loving it on the chat too. We uh, really appreciate having you here. Thank you very much, Tim. It was it was a great pleasure. It was really fun. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we are going to uh, open up the open lines. Um, so how to do that is to uh, first email your poem to open mic. That's openmic at rattle.com. If you'd like to share one, um, they can be news poems about current events. They can be prompt poems. The prompt this week was to write a poem about a photograph of your own. Um, so that was the prompt. Um, or you can just write a poem you've recently published and are proud of. Uh, you want to share a link, I can show the, what, the magazine it, it's in. That's always fun, too. So send your poems first to openmic at rattle.com. And then, um, and then find the Zoom. I'm going to deploy the Zoom link right now. The, uh, the Zoom link is deployed. Uh, we're going to be right back with open lines in just a moment. And uh, we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. We have a special guest today. The uh, winner of the Wrightwood Poetry Slam from a couple weeks ago is here. Um, Alex Clark. Um, it was so fun. It was two weeks ago, part of the Wrightwood, uh, Wrightwood Arts and Wine Festival that we did. And uh, we have a poetry slam at the end of the night. Taylor Molly was here, performed a great set, and did a workshop with a bunch of poets um, before. So that's kind of our new model, what we're going to do. I think next year we're going to do the same thing, have a great slam poet do a, a workshop. I think we're going to make it free as a, like a, um, you know, you have to like apply, but the people who come go for free. And then a slam at the end. And um, it's just so much fun. Everybody in our town loves it. It's weird because the, the, the crowd is like just this small town uh, crowd. And um, the winner here is Alex Clark. Hey, Alex, how you doing? Oops, I. Oh. I'm doing great. It's great to see you. So, um, so you uh, came down for the Wrightwood Poetry Slam uh, from San Francisco, the Bay Area, um, where you work. I just thought this was so cool. As a bridge, um, a bridge tender. Um, so I just imagine it's just such a romantic thought, imagining you up there on a tower working a drawbridge in the middle of the night writing poems. Um, it, it's just really cool to think of that. It's the closest thing I can get to to being a lighthouse keeper. So um, <laughs> absolutely, that's the way it works. I, I, I think that a lot of my favorite work has come out of those weird sleepless nights when uh, maybe a ton or no boats are coming through and you just got that glassy water down below you. Yeah, yeah, it's just very cool. And then um, and the other thing that was really cool about you winning this is that you're the uh, it was the first time you'd ever been in a slam. Um, which, and you mentioned, I talked to you, you mentioned you have a theater background, but um, can you talk about what, how it felt to do a slam for the first time and, and encourage people to do it? Because I had a lot of people I had to talk into, like pretty much all the people that were in the top couple or people I was like, oh, you got to do it. It's fun. And they're like, no, I'm not a slam poet. And then, uh, but I'm like, no, it's fun. And you got great poems, do it. Um, so, so what was it like doing it for the first time? Um, it was, it was of course nerve wracking, but the second you're on stage, uh, that all sort of falls away. Um, the thing that seems to be prevalent through all slams is the crowd wants you to succeed. They're, they're there to enjoy the poetry that you've brought. So anybody who, who writes, if you, if you don't like to speak it, 
that's maybe even the best place to go and 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 show off your work because that whole crowd is there to to uplift you and and amplify your voice so i absolutely would encourage anybody um who hasn't done it to find a local slam poetry um near you go go check it out and um if you don't perform the first time it's good to see it in action and you kind of can get a feel for for what to expect are there, are there any uh, slams? I was talking to Taylor just on the drive back uh, to the airport, like right after we had to go. We took a red eye back to New York, and um, and he was. We were talking about how like slam feels like it's sort of fading out a little bit because there's no national poetry slam, um, and with COVID, the combination of both was like a double whammy. And have you seen? Are there slams in your area? Are you thinking about doing them and and performing more now that you've done it? Yeah, um, I have. I actually so the uh, the. First slam was on a Sunday. That Wednesday, I went to um, the Starry Plow here in uh, Berkeley, California, and um, they've been running a uh, poetry slam there for years. And I'm sorry, I don't have the exact year for you, but um, during you know peak pandemic time, they were still doing a virtual slam. And um, there's there's that one and another one in Oakland put on by the same the same group. So I do think that the Bay Area is kind of a hotbed for poetry slams. Um, we're lucky in that in that regards, um, but I think I think if you find either open mic or or just search for poetry slam, you'll eventually find someone who knows about it, and that person will connect you out to uh, you know they, they've got their feelers out and they can direct you where to go. Yeah, well, it's so fun. I mean, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I love it. And I, I don't want to do an arts and wine festival every year. Like we were sort of debating if we're going to do it every year or every other year, but I want to do a slam every year. So I'm kind of leaning <laughs> on the every year side just for that reason. Um, but anyway, let, let's hear um, one of the two poems that you performed. I don't know. Which one do you want to do? Um, I'm going to perform uh, Today I Met a Real Angel. It's my, uh, my round two poem. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. And I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about it or just d- dive in. Ab- absolutely. Um, this is a true story. Um, I have been thankful that in my life, and it's, and it's really been great for my writing, my resume is as expansive as anybody else's. I haven't worked in a circus yet, but I've gotten pretty close. So this, this happened when I was, uh, delivering legal marijuana to somebody. And, um, it, it talks on the, feelings of of love and and what what is an angel really outside of the parameters of well the bible says it's this or this holy text says it's this um so i guess without further ado um here is today i met a real angel (sighs) today i met a real angel a five foot three hippie woman 68 and more youthful than me She yells to her dog as I approach the front door. Hush up, Dottie. He's delivering my weed. She is the spitting image of the picture next to the dictionary entry, sweet little grandma. When she leaves the room to fetch her money, I notice the guitar in the corner. Are you a musician? I ask. And she smiles. As she hands me cash, and I hand her an eighth of top shelf Gorilla Glue number four Indica. She says, I'm a youth worship leader at my church. And I laugh for a moment. And then I think about something that eats me up a little inside every day. You see, my father is a pastor. And when I'm not delivering weed, I too play music on Sundays. But something's always felt 
a little long. Something that I've left unspoken all these years, I say, does God still love me even though I'm gay? And she says, oh, honey, and wraps me in her arms. And I, six feet of beard and fat and muscle, more fat than muscle, cry 26 years of pain into her shoulder. She speaks to me of love and peace. And she holds me every moment of her heaving sobs, never once letting me go. And never until that moment, never in any church or synagogue or temple have I felt such love, such joy and acceptance. And she tells me she's dying. Terminal lung cancer, and she never smoked a day in her life before the doctor gave her the news. And in that moment, I understood what an angel is. An angel is someone who can give you that pure, unadulterated love, unfucked up by religion or bias before they leave this world. So someday you can pass it on. That bright, burning, unstoppable love that can never die. And if, if God exists, she is a five foot three pot smoking hippie grandma who loves you for you and me for me. Thank you. Yeah, actually, very cool to hear you uh, read that from and see your face. I used to, you know, I, I was at the back of the stage, um, seeing the back of your head, and everybody's dead at the uh, performance. Um, excellent poem, and the, and the way that you work with silence in that poem um, in the audience, that 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 sort of hushed electrical feel, uh, very cool stuff. Thanks for for being a guest and for sharing that today on the uh, Rattlecast too. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to stick around and listen to um, everybody else's work. Um, as, as we say in theater, everybody break a leg. I look forward to hearing you. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. And it was Alex Clark um, with uh, the uh, 2022 Wrightwood Poetry Slam champion. Hopefully he will come back um, to, uh, to defend his crown whenever we do it next. Um, now, we're going to go to the open lines, of course. And this is my prompt poem um, for everybody. This was uh, the, the prompt this week was to write a uh, poem based on a photograph of your own. I didn't get to, I didn't finish that one, but I'm one behind. Um, you know, I tried to open up photographs and I realized that all the photos on my phone are just of my kids and I can't share any poems with my kids. And I went down this whole like nostalgia lane looking at them when they were, you know, eight years old and three years old and two years old and going back in time through the, and then by the time I was like out of time to write a poem, but I am one behind. And so a couple of weeks ago, the prompt was to, uh, write a poem about your first memory. So here's my first memory poem I'll share, but then we'll get to everybody else. This is um, First Memory. Um, and this is a sonnet, a, a slant rhymey sonnet. First Memory. The Lego spaceship shattered in tall grass, a thousand pieces scattered in the blades, but no. Deeper down, I come across the crook of my father's arm, how at his side we'd Sundays watch the wonderful world of Disney. When I touched a hot pan for the first time, I fled to the front porch feeling pity for my palm. Its sudden blush of shame somehow separate, my hand a wounded bird in my hand until the street sweeper roared past a gargantuan god of metal. My parents in the front seat, a red maple, the appearance of, the, of a dog, 
its blur of fur, the world slipping as I grab it, a rag run dry, but dripping. That is my sonnet first memory, trying to dig back as far as I could. And that's, that's everything I could come up with, like literally every memory that I could still come up with, um, as far as it goes. So uh, let's go to, on the open lines, see if we have any first time. Let's go to Annie in. Anna hasn't been on in a while. Okay. Hey, Anna, okay. how you doing? Thank- Good, thank you. Actually, I want to share the point. Okay, I want to share the point because uh, last night I also read the Chinese one, Chinese version, for uh-huh. like uh, for judging uh, like boat uh, festival, right? Uh-huh. So I said, okay, this. Uh, so now I want to share the English version. Okay, this, this is ask. Uh, yeah, ask. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, did you share or? Um, you have to read your own. I'm showing it for everybody at uh, watching on YouTube and stuff, but you have to pull up your own version. Okay, pop on. Yeah. Okay, ask. After Chuyuan, in no time, summer softies has arrived. In a chance, the Dragon Boat Festival follows. My heart is wrapped by leaves of wreaths, unfolding, then closing. Bitter sweet and salt sweat, mixed flavors spread and spin. Neither the rolling yellow river nor the green mineral river appears. In my dream, the craving and craved shadow accompanies me all the way till dawn. On my window, raindrops keep tapping, warnings and whispers from winds and weather heard far and near. I wonder how many verses could survive erasure and sing internally, how high waves could rise after another journey. I see Wuchang fish fly in the reflection of April willows, tails white as snow, flashing like knives. Thank you. Oh, beautiful poem, man. I especially love that ending. That's great stuff that's asked. But, and <laughs> yeah, it's also the April. It's the cruel of the month, right? <laughs> for sure, yeah. Thanks so much for joining and sharing that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that was uh, Anna Yin, and uh, the poem came from uh, BrooklynPoetrySociety.com. It was the first place, um, let's see, um, it says first place. Not sure what. It doesn't say what award, but it was first place. So the very awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Anna. And let's go next to. Um, let me invite some people. And let me remind everybody too that once you read your poem, you can go back to uh, to YouTube or Facebook or wherever you were watching before to get the full experience and be able to see the poems as uh, as we read. Let's go to. Um, let's go to. Let's go to. Jennifer Wang. Let me pop my video. Hey. <laughs> hey, Jennifer. How are you doing today? I'm good. So what do you have that you would like to share? Um, I sent you a link because uh, it's got the image. And, you know, we were talking about prose poems. So I think this kind of counts as a prose poem. Uh, I wrote it for uh, my friend's writing 
blog that he was creating for all of us to share our work. And um, I also love poet or I love photography too. So I was starting to create these pieces that were basically ekphrastic kind of short prose poems, I guess. <laughs> so this was the first one that I created called Selfie Introduction. Okay, here we go. And, and so describe the photo too, just for people who are only listening. Um, yeah, so it's my first selfie and it's actually a, um, this was a little back in, we were just getting started on digital cameras. So it's a really kind of grainy selfie with uh, that used with a timer. I am in a cosplay of a Japanese rocker. So uh, I kind of have my androgynous look. It was one of the first times I kind of played with androgyny got sort of the, that rocker style suit with, you know, the open collar and the jacket. And I'm sitting at my desk, like looking kind of pensive and moody. Very cool. Well, let's hear the poem. Okay. So selfie introduction. I found my first selfie the other day or one of the first never thought to keep track back in the day, back when this habit was born, not out of vanity, but of necessity. How else do you document a costume when your parents want more work and less play and your roommates can't st stand the sight of your face? Okay, there is an element of pride, nothing wrong with that, but this is an expression of the self, even if the self is portraying someone else. The average American goes through five career changes in one lifetime. I'm just doing it simultaneously rather than sequentially. Lab tech, writer, burlesque dancer. That's only three, you say. But writer encompasses journalist, poet, and one who composes short stories. Maybe essayist would be a better fit there. Plus, I'm not just an American. I carry the burden of a hyphen between two cultures, with the added bonus of a sentimental attachment to a third, to the point where that nation is more a second home than the mother country. Some say the hyphen isn't needed, but I live in hyphens. Taiwanese-American, non-binary, gray asexual. My first selfie was taken 17 years ago, and now there's a word for the thing that came naturally to me. Because the word suddenly stopped at my fingertips or the back of my throat when the prompt was, tell us about yourself. It'd be so nice if I could just show a slideshow of the many facets of me, which are not masked contrary to what the aforementioned roommates believed. I am more myself when I am not explicitly myself. That probably explains why burlesque happened. At work, at play, at home, in costume, in the buff, on stage, on film, online, on paper. It's all me. Very cool. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for sharing that. And that was from, um, it's at rogegrouprwriting.wordpress.com. Is that a blog? Is that your blog or is that some uh, It's a blog that my friend created. And yeah, a lot, of, a lot of us are busy with our jobs, so that hasn't been as accurate. But yeah, it was us sharing mostly prose from him, poetry from me. And then we had some other friends kind of pop in with like, there, there's some fantasy football chat and just whatever we wanted to write. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks so much for sharing that and uh, join yeah, in, Jen. Yeah, there's Jennifer Lee Swang with a selfie introduction. And let's go, let's, an, another first time caller or, or joiner or whatever you call it, Zoomer, that's the word, Zoomer. Here's Carrie Luddy. Carrie, are you there? I am. Thank hey, you. Hi. Hi. How you doing? I think you have to click, click, click the camera if you want to be seen, but it's okay if you don't too. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Hello. Great to see you. So where are you calling from? I am in Corning, New York. 
Oh, in the Finger cool. Lakes. Yeah, that is because yeah. I grew up in Rochester. So uh, what? Yeah, I just moved here from Rochester. Oh, did you? What part of Rochester? Uh, we lived uh, near the canal in Pittsburgh. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's the, yeah. the best, the nicest place. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it totally is. For sure. We are on the other side, west side, represent yeah. uh, Greece. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Been but, there. Uh, so, so what is it that you like to share? And, and I, my dream is to move down there, by the way. That, that area is so beautiful. Um, I'd love to get like a farmhouse kind of house there. That'd be great. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that Finger Lakes, um, not a lot of people know about I, it. Yeah, I, I, I regret it. As soon as I said it, I regretted saying it because more people might. So don't don't listen to us. We don't know what we're talking about, but but hey, man, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's great wine country. I know you live in California. For sure. Right? Yeah. You do? yeah, yeah. It's great wine country. Um, yeah, I, I wrote this poem this week. Um, I've kind of laid down poetry for many years and I'm starting to resurrect that first love of mine I started writing when I was five or six. Um, I've been writing, I write for my own blog right now, but um, the shooting in Uvalde and, uh, you know, I'm originally from Connecticut. So when the shooting happened in Newtown and it just seems like it's, it's never going to end and no one is doing anything to solve it. And I have, pro-gun people in my family and anti-gun people in my family. And it's just like, they can't really talk to each other reasonably about this, but being a mom of, of three adult children now, but also three grandchildren, one of whom will be starting kindergarten next year. Mm -hmm. um, my son, her dad, uh, they're moving to New Zealand for nine months and I'm terrified they're never going to come back because mm -hmm. they're afraid to put their daughter in school. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's tough. And, and we're doing, not only are we doing nothing about it, but it's, it's just going to keep getting worse if we do nothing about it, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I wrote this poem coming from that place of feeling very helpless mm -hmm. um, and feeling like we've put our kids in the position where they have to take care of themselves because yeah. the adults are not doing their jobs. Yeah. So this is, we storm the building. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Yes. Thank you. As dutiful soldiers, we march to the yard. We've trained with no weapons, yet daily stand guard. We storm the building each morning at eight, bulky backpacks a burden, but we're never late. Our troops line the hallways, first graders salute, parading to classrooms in khakis and boots. The clang of the lockers, sneaker squeaks in the hall. Our regiment's ready for this reveille call. We stand for the flag, hand over heart. We pledge allegiance and promise our part. The teacher, our captain. Private, our rank. A classroom, our trench. A school desk, our tank. We've trained for our mission, but they're on the run. The man with the gavel, the man with the gun. Good soldiers take courage when placed in harm's way. Some more not for us on our Memorial Day. But weep for our mothers, whose laughter has died. Cry for our fathers, whose tears will not dry. Mourn for yourselves and your daughters and sons, left behind in a nation of gavels and guns. Our hearts are still beating as we're laid in the grave. The dead hearts are those who pledge, then betray. To support and defend, to protect and to serve, we storm the building because they lack the nerve. We kept our pledge, but theirs is undone. 
the man with the gavel, the man with the gun. Marble hallways are quiet up on the hill, a moment of silence for blood that was spilled. But angels hear echoes of lockers and boots, of laughter and high fives and first grade salutes, of cadets whispering prayers as they build a blockade while Congress and Senate shake hands in the shade, of troops taking cover, the captains their shield, children defending ground others would yield. We pledge allegiance, our hearts beating brave. We storm the building and they dig the grave. And that was uh, Carrie Larson Luddy. Um, I, I love that, the gavel and the gun, that, that thing there. We storm the building. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you very much for having me. And I, I've really appreciated today a lot. It's been very inspiring and encouraging. Great. Well, I'm so glad you could be here. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, let's go next to, um, let's go to Nivedita. Hello. Hey, Nivy. How are you doing today? Hey, Tim. I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm great. I, I finally, you know, I, I always wake up by the, you know, after like, 20 minutes I'm awake for the, show, for the morning shows. So I feel awake now. Um, what is it that you would like to share? Um, I have a prompt poem. Okay, let me pull it up. Um, here we go. Oh, beautiful. I love these photos. So I'll, I'll put them on screen for everybody, but describe them for people who are only listening. Okay, so the first picture is basically taken at sunset. And it's it's sort of a ground shot of a sunset, but not just your average sunset. There's a tree, and one branch of the tree is sort of holding the sun in its hands, almost like they're playing catch. So it's like the sun is a ball, and the tree is sort of catching onto the ball. And the second picture is actually what the tree would look like in full bloom. So these are, I think they're called golden laburnums or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they come here just during the start of summer season in India. Mm -hmm. And we use it for some of our festivals. So for certain festivals, that is the only flower you're supposed to use. So this is that tree, but just in summer, in full bloom, this is what it would look like. So those are the two photos that I have. Yeah, on that's, there. Just, yeah that's beautiful. I love that. Beautiful photos and a beautiful tree. And then below that are two short haikus about the photo. So... Two of us share shade under the golden flower tree, catch the last few rays. The leaves upturned to the sky wait to catch the burning ball, nature's playtime. Oh, that's great. The great uh, haiga, I guess you'd say, the the combination of haiku and, and the photographs. Yeah, beautiful. I just... Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivy. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely talking to you. Have a great day. Yep, have a good night. Thank you. Um, and let's go next to um, Candace, who is, here we go. Okay. Hey, yeah, it's great. You tried <laughs> to be on uh, last time. Uh, I and know. You couldn't get it to connect. But you are the founder of, um, or, or the inventor of the, uh, the, the prop last week, the Walt Marie. I am. I am. It's, it's kind of... Um an interesting phenomenon that's going on here so yeah it's very cool so how did that that come to be it's always fun to have the person here uh, to ask um well i was responding to a prompt on poetic bloomings with um walt and marie and um it seemed like 
each line kind of hesitated and then there was a word. And as I looked at it, each word was two syllables. And when I read them, they made a little poem by themselves. So, and then, and then it evolved a little bit, you know, and got refined a little bit, but um, it was one of those happy accidents that Mm -hmm. happened. And, And I wasn't sure if it was a form or not. So I sent it to Robert Lee Brewer um, and he said it was. So there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's so fun. It, it's always fun to hear how, how these things kind of be. Uh, we've had several several people who've invented different forms on, and um, it really makes me uh, you know want to invent one of my own for the for the notoriety of it. It's it's kind of a fun <laughs> little pin to have in your cap or something. Um, so you have one to share with us, right? The, Amid Chaos is the I, one you sent. Well. Well, that was I sent that last week, and then this week I sent one in response to the acrostic, which was a Walt Marie. While we aren't looking, okay, yeah. Why don't you read them both? Do you have a mid chaos with you? Because I have it. I do. Hold on, let me find it here. Okay, yeah. I try to keep them all in one file. That's what I do with the haiku or the the psyku. (laughs) I have one two hundred page psyku file. Yeah, mine's not quite that big yet. (laughs) All right, I have a mid-chaos up. Okay. The morning sun slants through the kitchen window where I sit surrounded by lacy patterned shadows made on the wall. Amid the calmness of morning bird calls, balk, and tea, there is chaos at the bird feeder. Finches and sparrows battling position, not waiting their turn. For theirs is a battle of survival, not a negotiation for peace. And the little poem is, I sit amid chaos waiting for peace. Yeah, that's just excellent. Amid chaos, a Walt Marie form poem. <laughs> um, and then let me uh, let me pull up the other one. And, and what's the other one? The other one is an ekphrastic poem for oh, this week's prompt. Yeah. Right. Um, While we are looking. Yeah, here we are, uh, while we aren't looking. And uh, do you want to explain? Oh, here's the photo, too. So so explain the photo for people who are just listening. The photo is um, a photo I took at sunset with bare trees and just this orangey-yellow background to it. It's it's very stark. It is, yeah, very stark, beautiful uh, sunset here with the trees and silhouette. And then, okay, go ahead with the, the poem. Okay, while we aren't looking, riding silently on a breeze, winter pushes the remaining warmth away. It sneaks in on us, turning moonlit nights bitter. And we still sing summer love songs and long for color on barren branches that once bore the reds of autumn. And the little poem is winter sneaks in and we long for autumn. Oh, that's beautiful. Thanks so much for sharing both. It's really cool to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, once again, that was um, Candice uh, um, Kubinek with uh, the the inventor of the Walt Marie form. And uh, let's go to Tanish Carr. Hi, Tim. Hey, Tanish, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's nice to see you. So, what do you have to share with us today? I have a few short ones. Um... One is new and one is a little bit older. Uh, the first one is new. It doesn't have a title. Okay, cool. Yeah, I have it right here. So go ahead whenever you're ready. Sure. Falling in love with yourself means breaking your heart over and over until it gets easier and then you don't. 
Self-sabotage peels and flakes away, as do people, starting from the middle and then the sides deconstruct. Your mind gets vivid and tenderly sharp, thinks and images all poems ecstatic, vibrations you learn ease, and self-control you are left. Oh, beautiful. And then the second one is a tapestry of city living. The machine I see from my balcony tosses black gravel into asphalt, patching up the road worn with years of treading, a patchwork bedding, a tapestry of neglected city living, bruised, not broken, with forlorn love. I lean in with my knees over my soft mattress. They buckle, drop thump face first to free fall into plush like a wave of the sea which I would do if the sea around here were warmer, water. My body fingerprints for the cushions, letting visitors to my bed know where I go, perfectly placed, even when the fluff resuscitates. It remembers my imprint, the ocean of my sacred aching, submerged skin. I love that image at the end. Uh, that was Tapestry of City Living. Thanks so much, uh, Tanisha Carr, for uh, sharing that poem, those two. Um, and then last, but certainly not least, uh, Dick Westheimer's here. Hey, Dick, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Tim. Um, I think I'll just go ahead and uh, share uh, first, and if there's time for another, uh, my um, ekphrastic that I sent in by email. Yeah, for sure. I, we have time for, for two poems, too. I think, yeah. Well, this one is only four lines. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, so we'll put this on the screen. Ex explain it to everybody who's looking at or who can't see the photo what the, what they're looking at. Um, so there's a place at the end of uh, um, Zion called Zion Narrows, where you get to hike up uh, the Virgin River, um, and it's an amazing hike. And there's a side hike up a place called Order Orderville Falls, and they're in order to get up Waterville, you have to climb waterfalls. And this is a picture of my daughter with her guns <laughs> yeah. um, uh, helping my wife climb a waterfall that I chose not to go up. It was, it was too tall for me. Yeah, that's um, a great photo and a really cool. I want to go there. I mean, what a place. Oh, it's, 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 it's amazing. I, you know, I haven't, we haven't been there for 15 years, but, and I don't know if the, what if the Virgin River still has water in it? You know, who knows? Uh, this was sort of before thing, things dried up. So the uh, poem, for what it's worth, is Climbing the Waterfall. The daughter's strong arm reaches for the mother's. The father watches from below. I love that. Climbing the Waterfall. Yeah, very cool. I love that photo. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. And then uh, what else did you want to share? Um, so I sent you two. I think Custom Coffin is a short one. Okay, let me just pull it up. Okay, yeah, here we go. Yeah, and that we we haven't published any of the poems, but we've gotten a lot of poems about this coffin. Um, the the person who made the coffins for um the artist uh for the for the victims of the shooting. Yeah, and you know I said in my comment it's a, it says one at once a you know a act of such extraordinary generosity and love and an abomination mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah definitely um so um this this is custom coffin 
if I die by bullet, I want my casket to be shaped like a gun. If by heart attack, place my ashes in an urn that pounds like a beaten drum. And if I drown, let the light of my body wash over the funereal crowd. But please, oh please, oh please, if before my time, my child's child would be shot and died, don't decorate his casket with Lego bricks and decals of toy trucks. Wrap him in a shroud made of the dust of my crumbled bones. Bury him in a hole dug in, was, in what was once me, a pit so deep and wide that the whole of what was previously good in the world would fall into it. Yeah, just another heartbreaking poem. Um, there's so many. Uh, thanks for sharing that custom coffin. Thanks, Dick. As always, always a pleasure. Thanks. Appreciate you, Tim. Yeah, you too. Okay, and now that is it for... Let me make sure there's no one in the waiting room still. Yeah, okay, so we're going to close up the Zoom. We'll see if we have any... I'm sure we have a few people that asked me to read um, or share poems. Oh, Carla Schwartz has one here. And let me... Uh, let me just get the audio file ready. Uh, there we go. Okay. So this is uh, the Carla Schwartz poem. Sorry, a lot to juggle here. Okay. So here's the Carla Schwartz poem, because I can't put the, uh, the audio file I have to download first, because I can't show two things at once. So here is the photograph that Carla included. I wonder, she might have even included a description of it. But this is a, um, if you're looking here... This is a um, beautiful cabin in the woods on a, um, or the houseboat. Is that a houseboat? I think that might be a houseboat. Um, but beautiful, uh, beautiful setting on a lake uh, in the woods. That might be a houseboat. Um, so here's Carla Schwartz's poem, or Two Haiku, uh, Two Haiku at Daybreak. Hi, this is Carla Schwartz, and I'm so happy to hear that the Rattlecast time is changing, and I hope to take part in person on Monday nights. I took this photograph, and I wrote two haiku inspired by the photograph this week. So we have at daybreak. In the early hours, baby sunlight, a promise of peace. In the early hours, baby sunlight, a promise of peace. And also, daybreak quiet, windless waters, hope for a safer world. Thank you. And that was Carla Schwartz with uh, with two haiku at daybreak, and it is going to be nice to be seeing Carla again, um, switching the time to uh, Monday evenings as it as it was. I'm, I'm sure some people are going to not be able to make it, unfortunately, when we move to Mondays, um, but other people are opening up the door, and that's what the poll showed when we did a poll about it. Just sometimes work for everybody, or I mean, no times work for everybody, I guess. Um, let's see. So here is a, a poem for um, a quick poem by uh, Potter O'Donohue. This is to verify it's you, and there's a great photo. I don't know if these are drawings that he made himself, uh, but here we go with this. This is uh, 
here's the the photo that he included all these uh faces we have a, a lot of different faces doodles of faces all over the place a huge crowd of doodled faces and this is his poem to verify it's you put on this uniform think of these bow bow down lower much lower get down on your knees and beg that is uh, a Pater O'Donohue's poem for this uh this image of the faces in the crowd and some of them might be, are they dead? I'm not sure. There's some X's in the eyes, too. But very interesting, as always, Potter. Great to see that. Um, let's see. So Kimberly included an audio recording. It's going to be quiet again, probably. I can't crank up the audio files loudly enough. Um, but let's see if we can get this to work. Um, okay, here we go. So this, this will be the last one, then we'll do this, the Saiku. This is uh, Kimberly McNeil. Um, the Dave's Lullaby for a Pig. Um, and here we go. My name is Kimberly McNeil. It is Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. And I'll be reading a poem I've written titled The Dave's, subtitled Lullaby for a Pig. Darling, how do you spell there, there? June was in the kitchen squinting at the ceiling when she asked. Where is what, hun? Her husband Dave said as he approached. You gotta learn to speak up, baby, or I can't ever hear you. So June yelled, and this homework is too hard. I can't put these Daves in correct order. They all look the same. But she did. She arranged them not alphabetically as misunderstood, but by their colors, who they appeared to be. A psychoanalytical prioritization of auras that stunned and confused her husband. Do you remember Dave from Arkansas? June shouted extra loudly. What, hun, what was that? Dave volleyed from the room next door. I told you about him. He had bright orange hair and knew all about mine hiking, June explained. He worked in the mine, you say. Dirty, dangerous work, those mines down there, but somebody's got to do it. Dave's hands were flapping all over the place when he spoke. Dave is a three-headed kind of guy. Will you look at my sketch, hon? June asked gently, rocking back and forth on their waterbed. Now what do you want, Dave said impatiently. Look at your what, babe? The Daves, she said, and held up a sketch of a three-headed hydra, beautifully colored and detailed. That's great. Dave droned without even bothering to look. June mumbled and hummed when she concentrated, when she illustrated. The Daves were born again on paper that day, listening to others in a supernatural way, humming a modern lullaby a rocking cradle of miscommunication.
end poem. 273 words. Excellent. Well, that was uh, Kimberly McNeil. Thanks so much for sharing that, Kimberly. And sorry the volume was low. I couldn't figure out for both um, for Carla's and Kimberly's how to crank it up. Of course, on the podcast version, I'll turn that up. Um, although I just, you know, there's there's no way to turn it past 100% the volume. Um, but I realized I could put it right into a, um, a uh, audio processing program and play it from there. And then I could do that. So from now on, that's what I'll do it. It only occurred to me halfway through that poem, though. But anyway, thanks for sharing that, Kimberly. That was great. Um, the Daves, a very cool, uh, very cool poem. And um, let's uh, let's time for the uh, Saiku. And let's wrap this show up. I got a softball doubleheader later. I'm very excited about that. Um, so let's get going. This is, uh, this is my Saiku for the week. And here is the article that inspired it. Uh, here we go with this. This is um, Bacteria Killing Drills Get an Upgrade. If you can... Oops, hang on a second. So um, this is from Rice University. If I can... Can I squeeze enough in there? So uh, Bacteria Killing Drills Get an Upgrade. Visible Light Triggers Rice's Molecular Machines to Treat Infections. And this is a, this is a kind of crazy way that scientists at Rice University are making these molecular machines, which are actually drills that run powered by light. And their their breakthrough here was that they could make it powered by visible light rather than UV. Um, and these drills spin on an axle and drill into cells, killing bacteria. So the idea is that you could make a light-activated cream that you spread on top of like a um, like a bad a bad burn for burn victims to make sure they don't get um, bacterial-resistant infections. Um, and because it's a mechanical way of killing bacteria, the um, that there's no chance of it becoming. Um, you know, the bacteria becoming resistant. There's no way you could adapt. It's, it's, it's mechanical, not biological. Um, but, but it, it's just a thing like, like how do we, um, I don't know, would that really hurt on your skin? I mean, these little drills and these nanoparticles drilling into your own cells too, as they drill into the bacteria. I don't know, very crazy futuristic science fiction stuff coming out of Rice University there. And the Saiku went a, a strange direction from that. This is one of the, the farther leaping ones, but this was my thought process. So somehow I got to this, and this is the Saiku for this week. Um, Woodpecker's Tongue. A seatbelt for its brain, useless knowledge. Woodpecker's tongue, a seatbelt for its brain, useless knowledge. And that is true. A woodpecker's tongue wraps around the back of its brain and sort of buckles it in when it's, when it's drilling into the trees. And uh, for some reason, that is something I, I know. So anyway, that is the Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Um, next week's prompt is going to be this. A coal miner descends very simple prompt a coal miner descends that is your prompt for this week a kind of narrative story-based prompt we'll see what you can do with it um that is your prompt and next week's guest is going to be uh, katie porter um katie is in, in the inland empire area katie is one of the people who does the most for writing she's the uh, president of the inlandia institute which does workshops all over um like the riverside area um she's also um is the editor of, uh, for a long time of um poem poemelian magazine um she has several books her most recent is novel which is coming out 
um, or just released um, novel by Katie Porter. That is Rattlecast number 148. And note the new time. This is going to be the permanent new time from now on. Monday, June, or Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, that's the new time. Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. June 13th is the next one. Rattlecast number 148. And your poem is about a coal miner descending with Katie Porter. That will be uh, a week and a day from now, so you get an extra day to write your, uh, your prompt poem, too. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great rest of your Sunday, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.